The humor of science, sustainability, nature's rarest isotope, and Neutrino Day. Today is Friday, July 7th, 2023, and this is In the Moment Innovation. I'm Kara Hetland, and we're broadcasting live from the 4850-foot level of the underground Sanford Underground Research Facility. And joining me in this annual Neutrino Day preview broadcast are Sam Mayer, who is working on the search for the decay of nature's rarest isotope. Science comedian Brian Malo is a featured Neutrino Day speaker, and we'll talk about making science funny. And Chief Henry Redcloud is using science in bringing renewable energy to the reservation. Mike Headley will give us an update on the lab, and Constance Walter is here with the Neutrino Day preview. That's all ahead on this special broadcast from a mile underground. You're in the moment, and the news is first. And I'm Kara Hetland, and we're broadcasting from the Sanford Underground Research Facility about a mile underground. And joining me uh, first is uh, Chief Henry Red Cloud. Uh, he is the founder of Red Cloud Renewable. Uh, and that was a, an organization that was founded in 2008. And also joining me at the broadcast table is John Red Cloud. So thank you both for being on the program today. I appreciate it. So let's just start, and uh, you're here for Neutrino Day. You're speaking tomorrow. You're talking about renewable energy. Talk a little bit about using the sun that we can't see right now uh, as renewable energy and, and the science uh, that you're seeing down here today and what kind of influence that has uh, on you right now. So uh, John Henry, which do you prefer? Sure. I okay. can go. Um, yeah, being here at... Uh, being here today is sitting a mile underneath here in a sacred Pahasapa is um, very awesome. Being able to see what's happening since uh, the past 150 years of mining, n now doing the surf, you know, project here. It's really awesome to see there's a lot of good things happening here. I encourage everybody to come and visit. But yeah, uh, the. The sun plays a huge role in everybody's life. Uh, each and every one of us, who, no matter who we are, uh, it plays a huge role. So, yeah, what we're doing at RCR is we're taking this beautiful, wonderful energy that has been produced for neons and taking it and bringing it into the livelihoods of people's homes in a form of solar energy. So yes, uh, you know, I'm, um, that's what we do at RCR. John, would you like to add something to that? Yeah, well, briefly, thank you. Um, first of all, to serve, you know, the folks, Constance, Walter, and Rochelle Zenz, who extended the invitation for Red Cloud Renewable to join Neutrino Day and to um, really allow us to share some of the work that we're doing on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and trying to think about our history you know we come from Pine Ridge my, my dad and I were born and raised on the reservation and there um, many things about the the reservation and coming under underground here to surf um, it's thinking about the the science that really drives neutrino day and all the participants that descend upon this day to celebrate um, science advances and to um, discuss the the future of where science is headed and in sitting down here a mile below not able to feel the sun not able to know 
and understand why some of these um, experiments are done down here to be insulated from that cosmic radiation that none of us can really see. So it's interesting to see this happening. And, and again, I echo my dad's sentiments. It should be on one's bucket list to <laughs> make an effort to come to surf at some point and, 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 and visit and see all the amazing science that's happening down here. And tomorrow during Neutrino Day, talk a little bit about some of the things you're going to, to discuss. Would like to, uh, we would like to, I would like to discuss what, what needs to happen, what we all need to be doing, uh, lessening our carbon footprints and, and, and this clean energy movement. If we all move down this road together, then uh, we can then be effective and, and uh, to help uh, do our part in creating a healthy uh, earth, water, air for future you know, generations. Uh, currently, the way that we're headed down this path, this gray tarnished path, is going to be destruction for one and all. So that's, that's going to be my message. So the clean carbon footprint, yeah. the yeah. solar energy mm -hmm. is, what, is what needs to happen. So you're not, what, what CRC is doing is really RC. RCR, sorry, my apologies, yeah, okay. Red Cloud Renewable. Um, what what you're doing, though, is training people on how to install solar yes. panels. Is that yes. correct? Yes, we are. We're creating economic opportunities based around solar installs uh, through all the phases of solar. What may it be design, installation, maintenance. Okay. And you have, you have another batch of students coming uh, in correct. about a month. Um, less than a month or month and a half, give or take. Um, and about how many students do you have at a time? And tell me a little bit about that program. John. Sure. We, we run a pre-apprenticeship readiness program called pre-ARP, which really is designed to, um, to work as, as a workforce development component. And each class has around 14 students. Um, and each of them students goes to a hands-on learning component in the classroom with whiteboarding happening, learning concepts about resistance and volts and, and wattage. And then they, in turn, take that into a hands-on lab where we have a mock roof, you know, at our training center at, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And then that's also supplemented with a community event we like to call upskilling, where the students are able to install an actual system on a tribal member's home. And it's a win-win situation also. Because we are 501c3, we rely on the generosity of uh, people just like the listeners today who provide funding to our, our program, and they also get to feel um, what it's like to pass that on, and a community member benefits from that system as well. So um, that's how it kind of works. We've worked with about 70 tribes, and a little over 1,200 students now have passed through the doors of the Red Cloud Renewable Energy Center which is a first-of-a-kind, one-of-a-kind renewable energy training center on the Indian Reservation. So happening right right there in Pine Ridge, just south of here. And, Chief, you you say that you're teaching new ways to honor old ways. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Sure. For uh, for neons here in the Ocheti Ishaokoyan land of the seven council fires, our base foundation is Ampetiwi. It's the sun, uh, 
it's uh it's in our ceremonies our song our dance in our way of life our language so uh we have been embracing solar sun for neons just you know taking this new way and honoring the old way and then becoming sustainable and lessening our carbon moccasin print as well as creating economic opportunities so uh there's um lastly there's this here saying that probably you all heard or most of the people heard was uh especially the backing up to uh the year ni- 2016 when they had the no dapple movement up there they said mini wechoni wechoni actually translates to english as we we meaning sun cho meaning beautiful and ni meaning to live so living under the beauty of the sun so taking the new way and honoring the old way becoming sustainable creating economic opportunities lessening our carbon moccasin print and how how receptive uh, are people on the reservation to to embracing uh, the solar uh, energy and and what it is that you're doing? I uh, I've been involved with solar uh, since 1997, uh, and uh, since that time to current, there are so many people that are so interested in solar. There's only three types of solar out there. There's the PV systems, which create electricity. There's the hot water heating systems, and there's the hot air furnaces. Um, Each of them doing multiple things underneath them, but there's a movement of solar. Back in 1997, solar rooftop solar used to be 10, 12 bucks a watt. Today, it's 85 cents a watt. It's really cost effective. Uh, where each and every one of us throughout the state of South Dakota, we're state of South Dakota folks, we're the sunshine state. Uh, You know, we're the regime of solar energy. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is we need to, what what we need to do as a whole of unity coming together is to go into legislation and change the net metering policy. Mm Here in the lower 48, there's two states that are that don't have the net metering. It so happens to be North and South Dakota. So I encourage everybody throughout the state of South Dakota, let's get involved and let's change that. So then we can be it can be more effective here in the state here, from small scale to large scale. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank you both uh, for taking time. Um, Obviously, can't go anywhere uh, right now until we're finished. But thank you for being on the program today. Thank you. uh, And for your involvement during Neutrino Day as well. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment Innovation. I'm Kara Hedlund, and we're broadcasting from the 4850 foot level of the Sanford Underground Research. A facility, surf, and uh, it is Neutrino Day weekend, uh, Neutrino Day Saturday, uh, and the keynote speaker is joining me now at the broadcast table, and Brian Mallow is here. He is a self-proclaimed Earth's premier science comedian and science communicator, so thanks for stopping by the broadcast table when you could be doing all these other things, right? I was in the neighborhood. (laughs) I didn't have, I had an open spot. (laughs) But you've been doing some 
science communications while you've been down here. So tell me a little bit about some of the things. I saw you in the really clean room uh, doing a little broadcast, were you? Or? Well, that wasn't live, although they have great Wi-Fi here. <laughs> Turns out you wouldn't guess that. But um, I did a little live streaming. of We had some great tour guides here, so I streamed a little bit to Instagram. And then I, uh, and when I talked to Mike, I streamed a little to my YouTube and Twitter and Facebook channels at Science Comedian. I'm very easy to find. Okay, at Science. But Comedian. when I was in the clean room with, uh, I think your next guest, Sam. Yeah, yeah. Sam is one of the other speakers tomorrow. Um, I didn't broadcast that. I just recorded some video. We were in there, and he showed me around, and it was very cool. So this is your first time here underground, but not really your first time going underground at a science facility. Right, and right. Uh, I previously visited. Don't ask me what year, but I previously visited Snow Lab in Sudbury, Ontario, and that's another, uh, that's in an active nickel mine. Okay. And uh, so that was five, six, seven years ago. Right. Um, so that time I was a little concerned, not concerned, but I wondered if I would feel claustrophobic. You go down into this cage a mile underground, the, there's no windows, There's <laughs> you're, you're completely underground, but you know, turned out I wasn't bothered by it at all you don't think about it there's just it's big and vast and it's really interesting and uh and i was actually supposed to be here yes. in 2020 yes so was i <laughs> <laughs> we we've done this before yeah no. <laughs> so um so you did uh you you uh were the keynote speaker uh remotely yeah in, in 2020, 2020 um they actually because it had to be virtual they expanded neutrino day into almost a week of mm -hmm. activities and i performed virtually and i also four days in a row i interviewed a scientist uh, one was about the big bang one was about dark matter one was about neutrinos and one was about the end of the universe so i love interviewing scientists that's uh i started out as a comedian but I love science, and I love interviewing scientists and making sure it's understandable and interesting to the public. Mm -hmm. How do um, you do that? What's your secret? Give, give me some tips. What's your secret in doing that? You know, that's a good question. I don't have a formula. Um, I'm just driven by curiosity, and I'm very enthusiastic about the subject. I think sometimes I get interviews just because, good interviews just because of that. Um, I'm interested in the subject and mm -hmm. the person in even if I know nothing about it then I just want to know more and I mean how can you not be interested we're a mile underground <laughs> studying these elusive particles dark matter yeah. or neutrinos mm -hmm. um, so I just bring my curiosity enthusiasm to it I like to tell people my 85 year old mother's listening she needs to understand yeah so talk to her exactly you know when I'm a comedian on stage, obviously humor is the main thing. When I'm interviewing someone, I realize that clarity is number one. I want, I'm not a scientist. I wanna make sure I understand it. But sometimes I also know, maybe I understood that, but would my sister understand that? Mm -hmm. um, so clarity, then enthusiasm, then humor. And okay. ideally it comes out if you're relaxed and you can be yourself. Mm -hmm. Maybe a little humor comes out. <laughs> and how then do you turn that around and make science funny? Yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> how do you? Um, that's just, you know, I always loved science first. 
way before I thought about becoming a comedian. So when I became a comedian, it was pretty natural for it to be a little geeky. I just drew from, I just have sort of a science worldview and I love drawing from the language of science, metaphors and, um, and it's not that every joke is educational. Not every joke is about science. It might be that I noticed when my mother would lose weight, my father would gain weight. When my father lost weight, my mother gained weight. It was like the conservation of mass within our family. <laughs> and I had a theory that you never actually lose weight. You just give it to somebody else. Fat can be neither <laughs> created nor destroyed. So is that educational? I don't know. It's, but it's drawing from the language and ideas of science. But then applying it to anything. Um, so it's not that I'm always talking about science, but there's something about the science worldview I, I used to do a show called Rational Comedy for an Irrational Planet. And I like it because that, I feel like my sensibilities were formed as much by, uh, I grew up reading science fiction and especially Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, and they wrote a lot of nonfiction. They wrote even more nonfiction than, than science right. fiction. Maybe mm -hmm. not everyone knows that. And Asimov was such a good explainer of things extremely clear. He could take you to a complex place without losing you. And he wrote with personality and humor. So I feel like his, I, my sensibilities were formed as much by him as by George Carlin and uh, early comedians I liked. Okay. And w tomorrow at four o'clock uh, as the keynote speaker. And so since you've done this virtually, how did you have to change things up to be in person, <laughs> do you think? Well, it's not changing. This is just going back to the way it always was. <laughs> I don't have to change it up for this. Uh, the virtual experience was a little strange. I, uh, uh, Neutrino Day 2020, that was one of my first experiences being alone in a room in my house, performing stand-up comedy directly to a camera, and not seeing the audience. <laughs> no reaction. Right. At some point, right. I was like, how do I even know I haven't lost the internet connection? For all I know, the past <laughs> half hour, I've only been talking to my camera. The joke's on you, yeah. right? Yeah. So that was something that, and people might not realize that stand-up comedy might seem like a monologue, but it's a dialogue. Um, I'm counting on this response from the audience, and it's a little bit of a dance, and I establish a rhythm with the laughter. And when it wasn't there, all of a sudden you go, oh. Okay, so it's all on me to just find the right rhythm. Mm -hmm. So being on stage, that's just easy in comparison. <laughs> Something you're looking forward yeah. to. And what should the audience look forward to? Um, just a good time, mostly. It's, uh, I'm a comedian. I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm there to make you laugh. Um, we might learn a couple little things about science, but mostly it's just going to be a good time and science flavored. Um, if there's a message, sometimes even if, I feel like some stuff that's not explicitly educational. Um, if you come see me and you watch me for 30 minutes or an hour, getting laughs with, with very sciencey stuff, maybe you walk out of there going, hey, uh, science isn't boring. Science can be fun and and uh, and interesting. Um, I think a lot of times people come to see me because they're seeking. It's self-selecting. They've come for science comedy, but then 
every once in a while I think someone ends up at a show and they didn't expect science comedy and maybe they thought science is scary or hard or boring and maybe they walk out of there going, huh, that was fun. That was very geeky but very fun. And kids, could it spark an interest in science in kids? I like to think so. <laughs> um, but it's not, you know, somebody once asked me, they go, science comedian, so you teach kids about science using stand-up comedy? And I was like, uh, no, if you're a geek, I'll make you laugh. Those are very different. But, mm -hmm. but ultimately, I've gotten involved in a lot of science communication stuff. I made science videos for Time Magazine and uh, uh, audio pieces for Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk Radio. Um, and I do a lot of stuff involving interviewing scientists for video projects or events. So I do, and there's always been the teacher in me. When I learn something, I do want to share it, but it's not a lecture. Um, you'll get, you'll learn plenty from Sam's uh, talk uh, earlier in the day, and I'm there to make you laugh, but make you laugh. And maybe I have a few things to say that are sort of inspirational about the love of science. And so since you've been down here, your first uh, trip underground here, uh, have you picked up on anything that you may use in future routines i hope so i have to process it a little um but yeah i think so because the whole experience is so unusual and kind of surreal um you're you know and it, some of the experiments here are about searching for things that are coming from space and we're a mile underground looking for it so that's already kind of weird. Um, <laughs> it's already funny. Yeah, and yeah, people that spend their, their whole work day down here in this windowless environment uh, in a former gold mine. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I have a lot to think about. I don't know how much of it will come out on stage tomorrow, but we'll see. But in the, so a reason to catch you later, too. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. And, right. you know, in terms of inspiration, I do like saying I'm not a scientist, and uh, I like saying that Art is not just for artists, music is not just for musicians, and science is not just for scientists. It's for everybody. It's for everybody. All right. Brian Malo, I want to thank you very much. Thank you for, for having For being me. on yeah. the program today. You're listening to In the Moment. I'm Kara Hetland, and we're broadcasting from the 4850-foot level of the Sanford Underground Research facility and Sam Mayer joins me now at the broadcast table. He is a staff scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory and co-principal investigator of the tantalum, tantalum, yes. tantalum experiment here at the 4850 foot level. So thank you for being here. Tell me what it is that this experiment is. Yeah, it's great to be here. So. Uh, this experiment is uh, using the infrastructure that we had in place from a former experiment we did here called the Majorana Demonstrator. The Majorana Demonstrator was an ultra-low background measurement trying to measure a decay called neutrinoless double beta decay. And after we finished this experiment in 2021, we then moved to do another experiment that took advantage of this existing configuration we had to try to measure a pretty unusual decay in one particular isotope of the element called tantalum. So uh, it has a unusual nuclear arrangement where it's stuck in something called an excited state. Tantalum 180 is stuck in this metastable state. Now that's pretty unusual because 
in general, most of these excited states decay immediately, and some of these isomers will decay in a few seconds or minutes. However, this isomer has never been observed to decay at all, ever. In as far as we know, nobody's ever measured it. So in the last hundred years, a number of people have tried to do this. But because we have this ultra-low background configuration present from these previous experiments, we were able to put in a large amount of tantalum metal inside of the detector. And as a result, we are able to make a world-leading measurement that uh, so far, after taking data for a year, gives us a factor of a hundred or a thousand better measurement than anybody's ever been able to do. And so hopefully within the next year, we'll, we'll fully cover all the available space where this could occur, and we'll actually make a measurement to observe this decay. You'll see it. We hope so, yeah. So uh, the, we're about a factor of, of 10 right now below where we expect the maximum to uh, the lifetime of this decay could exist. And within another year, we expect to cover about a factor of five more. So if we're, if we're lucky, we'll cover it pretty quickly here in the next year. So tell me what the hypothesis, what the theory is. Um, with this decay process. Tell me, tell me, explain that just a little bit. Sure, yeah. So an isomer is just a, 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 a nucleus can be in an excited state and an isomer is just when that excited state lives a little longer than you expected it to. And there's these properties of nuclei called, uh, called spin where the uh, different excited states can have different spin levels. And so if those spin differences are very large, it is hard to emit a gamma ray that comes out with enough spin to make that jump. And so because it's a pretty low energy and a pretty high amount of spin, it turns out that that makes it take a really long time for this to decay to proceed if it occurs at all. But based on uh, very well understood theoretical uh, groundings, we're, we have a very good idea of what that half-life should be. But this is a really excellent way to test out those those theories because there are no longer half-lives to measure than this one. This is the most extreme situation you can try to, to put your models to the test with. So use the example of the swing mm -hmm. because that's what made the most sense to me. The yeah, swing sure. just hangs straight until... Yeah, so if you picture uh, an isomer, it's sort of like if a swing had swung back and you see it has this potential energy, like it should just swing back forward, but but for some reason it's stuck there. And there's something that you can't see that makes that kind of happen. So uh, it just um, it looks a little bit funny when you look at it. You you know that it should decay, it should go back to the bottom when you've swung backwards, but it just hasn't made it there. And so an isomer is kind of like that. You've trapped some energy, and sometimes people refer to this as a a spin trap. Okay, so that's the spin trap. And so you're hoping to watch it go back to, to normal? Right. So uh, tantalum 180 is pretty unique in that it, all of the tantalum 180 that's present in nature is actually stuck in this excited state because the ground state of tantalum 180 will decay within eight hours half-life. And so uh, if there were any present in nature, it would all have decayed a long time ago. So all of the tantalum 180 we see is stuck in this excited state. And uh, as soon as it decays away from that excited state, it will then further decay out to uh, something else. So. so it's never 
So why wouldn't that be normal? <laughs> yeah, so in general, almost every single uh, isotope that you encounter in nature is in the ground state because these excited states all only live for, for picoseconds or femtoseconds. If you excite them to some excited state, they'll immediately decay back downwards. And so this tantalum isotope is a very unusual situation from a nuclear physics Because we're talking years. Yeah, more than years, more like... Uh, uh, 10 to the 20 years or something like that. It's uh, uh, um, longer than we believe the universe has existed so far. So you may not see it decay. Well, so it would be, if you were watching a single atom, it would maybe take you 10 to the 20 years to see that decay happen. But because uh, we actually have a large number of atoms, a whole mole of atoms, you might say, so 10 to the 23 atoms and 180 grams of this material, then you can do, uh, uh, you can counteract the fact that it takes a really long time for one atom to decay by looking at a whole bunch of atoms. And so you know, rather than waiting 10 to the 20 years, you get 10 to the 20 atoms and wait one year or something like that. Okay, so you may not whatever you whatever you learn from this experiment is going to benefit us how <laughs> yeah so there's a number of ways uh, it's an interesting problem one is just it's a it's a hard problem that people have known about for a long time so it's kind of interesting to to build the infrastructure to be able to make that measurement in general uh, it also can inform us about stellar nucleosynthesis and that is how we build uh, how we make atoms basically in the universe because this is a, a, a very weak branch it kind of hints at ways we could have gotten to that point so if we learn how we made that tantalum it can tell us a little bit more about nucleosynthesis in general plus uh, another interesting thing you can do with this isomer is actually look for dark matter by using this uh, experiment and so what can happen is dark matter can come in and interact with that and while normally that that decay would be hindered excessively, dark matter can actually force that de-excitation and you would make a measurement that appeared to occur at a faster rate than you might expect. And so if we were seeing a, a lot of this, you can actually make a, make a statement that you, would, you could see dark matter in this way. So another reason, it turns out almost every very sensitive experiment, uh, somewhere down the line, you can look for dark matter interacting with it. Well, now that would be funny, right? If this is if this is where dark matter is discovered, right? Yeah, <laughs> it would be unusual. So uh, there's a lot of different kinds of experiments that try to attack the dark matter problem mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways, and so we uh, there's lots of different properties that people uh, try to test whether dark matter is this way or that way, and so uh, this would be a little bit of a different way than the uh, the Lux or LZ experiment, also underground here at SURF would have uh, tried to try to look for it, but it is uh, another possible mechanism we can try. And you personally, what what's your hope? What's your wish? What's your secret wish? Oh, I'd, I'd love to be uh, I'd love to be able to make this measurement with um, just to observe the decay would be really interesting. Okay, and how did you get involved uh, in this, and and how did this become your your work? Yeah, so. Uh, I worked actually with this collaboration as a graduate student when I was at the University of North Carolina. And uh, at that time I was, you know, plugging in cables and building detectors and that sort of thing. And uh, so now I, it's kind of fun when I come back to this project because I'm very familiar with the details of how to, uh, 
how to how to make this project work for this particular experiment. We now know, uh, well, well, we'll build it this way because of this, and uh, it makes it much more efficient to try to put together a project. So you were able to, to make the changes that needed to happen with the detector. Yeah, so in 2021, when the experiment finished, we actually took all of the, uh, the isotopically enriched material to move it to another larger double beta decay experiment, which is currently taking data in Italy mm -hmm. um, on another underground lab, Gran Sasso. And at that time, we had all of these uh, very clean, low background detectors. And we were able to uh, to reuse a lot of components. We, you know, uh, went in the machine shop down the hall here underground and uh, modified some components so that we could get everything to fit together correctly with uh, the minimum number of modifications required. So you were an graduate student here at Surf, yes? Uh, I did through, spend uh, yeah. quite a lot of time here at Surf uh, in grad school, somewhere between a, a third and a half of my time. Sometimes I was out here quite a lot. And now, how often do you come back? Uh, I'm out here still a few times a year, but uh, right now our detectors are, are in full operation, so it doesn't require as much on-site effort for me. So you can just monitor remotely, That's right, right yeah. We have an exceptional, uh, we have got sensors and valves and things we can control as much as possible remotely, because even when we are on-site, we're not able to be underground at all times, and so having the ability to jump in and check on things and change some voltages and open a valve is really important to be able to, to remotely be able to handle. And you're hoping to have data within a year? Yeah, so we, we just uh, put out a paper uh, very recently on the archive, which is a way we often release papers, uh, hopefully be published soon. And within another year of data taking, I think we will have a, a very interesting result here. Okay. I look forward to hearing more about it. So, Sam, I want to thank you for taking time and, and being part of this broadcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks All a right. lot. Thank you, Sam. Mayer is a staff scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory and co-principal investigator in the Tantalum experiment here at SURF. So thank you very much for being on the show. Welcome back to In the Moment and the special innovation broadcast from the 4850-foot level. I'm Kara Hetland. Joining me now is Mike Headley. He's the executive, executive director of the South Dakota Science and Technology Authority and the lab director here at SURF. Thanks for coming back. How, how many years? 10, 15, 12? <laughs> this is our 15th year. So, yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're excited. Yeah. Decade and a half of Neutrino Decade Day. And a half there you of go. Neutrino Day. There you go. Fifteen years. Uh, and Constant Walter is here. She is the communications director here at SURF. Neutrino Day is tomorrow, fifteenth anniversary uh, of this day of celebrating science. So do we want to talk about changes at the lab? Do we want to talk about that first and then go to Neutrino Day? What's your preference? Yeah, let's uh, let's start with what's what's happening here. Lots. All right. Yeah, Things there's a lot changed. going on. Yeah, <laughs> as we walk through this morning, the excavation for the Long Baseline Neutrino Facility is is well down the road to being completed. They're about 70% completed 70%. with the excavation. And so uh, the we like to say the breaking of rock uh, will be completed around the end of this year. Okay. So the excavation will be completed, and then we'll see a transition. be a lot of concrete that's going to be installed to produce the, the flooring that's needed. And then uh, infrastructure will start to be installed, power, HVAC, all the utilities that are needed to support the deep underground neutrino experiment. And then about a year from now, the, uh, the actual large cryostats for the experiment will start to be installed. 
So incredibly exciting times. It really is. Did you, I mean, it's been a process to get to this point, right? Yeah, I, I've been here for a, <laughs> for 15 years as well. And yeah. there were a number of times along the way where we wondered if we were going to continue forward. And, and now the momentum is just incredible. We're, we're going to see people coming here from 30 different countries from around the world. Our user base overall at SURF is now over 2,000 scientists. And so uh, working with well over 200 institutions and uh, we're on the world stage and, and the lab is, is really moving forward. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get 13 million from the South Dakota legislature this last winter. Mm -hmm. And so we're making plans to build out even more space uh, for additional experiments that would come around the beginning of this next decade. So you have scientists who want to come, you're th that are asking to come, asking for space? The, the need for underground space in the world uh, far exceeds the capacity right now. And so there are a number of labs around the world that are trying to get funding to expand uh, to be able to fill the need. Everyone wants to host the best science in the world at their location, and you got to have space underground to do it. So everyone is you know, pushing to expand, and, and we're doing that as well. So we hear a lot about the the big experiments uh, and and the and the neutrino baseline experiment, but talk a little bit about some of the smaller ones uh, and some of the partnerships that you have here in the state as well. Sure, uh, we we do a lot of work with biology uh, groups here in the state. Um, scientists from Black Hill State University and and South Dakota Mines. Uh, we so we host a number of uh, biologists. Uh, we have uh, just down the hall from us. We have a uh, an area where we take an, uh, a look at all the various components of experiments that are coming underground and try and understand how much radiation are they, just kind of natural radiation are they giving off? Are they going to cause uh, problems for the experiment when it's actually constructed? And that's uh, something we do in partnership with Black Hill State University. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, so the process of, I mean, to give, give us a, as we are walking through one tunnel, you know, it's, it was very kind of enclosing and then there were areas that were just giant. So as we were coming through, talk a little bit about some of that, that you had some space, but you had to expand it, uh, as well. And, the the routine, the number of blasts a day that happened. Uh, to remove that rock. So talk a little bit sure. about that process. Yeah, so in general, um, Tyson Mining Company is the company that's doing the, the excavation work under contract to Fermilab. And so they generally will, will blast twice per day, uh, generally 5.30 in the morning and 5.30 in the evening. And then in between those times, they're m removing that rock and then drilling out additional holes that'll be load, loaded with explosives to do the blast at the end of the shift. And uh, it, you're absolutely right. The scale of the of the what we call drifts or the tunnels is much bigger than what we've had before. And so uh, the tunnels in general for for the LBNF Dune excavation are six meters uh, in height and five meters wide. And so you know roughly 18 feet by roughly 15 feet. And so they have to be that big to be able to get the large equipment into the caverns. And the caverns that are being excavated. Uh, are massive. If you can, I always try and tell people if you can picture a loaf of bread, so kind of flat corners at the bottom but, but rounded at the top, that is uh, a, a loaf of bread that's 475 feet long, 90 feet tall, and 65 feet wide times two. 
and those are the scale of the detector caverns that are, are being constructed for the LBNF Dune project. Okay. Okay, and that's moving forward, and everything's going to be in place, ready to go, two years, three years? So the, the actual filling of the first detector is, is planned to start in 2027. Okay. So we're about four years away from that, but there uh, just been a ton of planning going into this, and, and the support from Congress for the experiment has been great. Even right now, uh, if folks who pay attention to what's happening with funding in D.C. know that things are a bit constrained. Uh, the uh, the the mark or on the on the budget that the the house produced just a couple of weeks ago was a 49 million dollar increase for the project, so it's uh, ramping up to be able to get the funding that it's going to need to get all this work completed, not only here but also at Fermilab to modify the neutrino beam to be able to point it from uh, from Fermilab to here to be able to produce the neutrinos that are needed for the science. Right, and they're they're. Pushing that through the earth to catch here, yeah. right? Yep. It's a there's simple no, way to say there's, it. There's no tunnel between <laughs> here and there. They just go right through the You're rock. not going to build that, too. No. no. <laughs> so Fermi, right. is, Fermi is responsible for that. <laughs> okay. All right. Constant Walter is here. Connie, thanks for being here. Um, and so Neutrino Day, lots of activities, things changing, things staying the same. Well, things are always changing yeah. for Neutrino Day. Um, you heard from uh, all three of our main speakers. Uh, you're also going to hear from Caterpillar, which has a test bed on the 1700 level. They're doing um, research into locating people or tracking people and equipment and things um, underground. And so we're going to hear from them. Um, we're going to learn a little bit more about science, but also one of the exciting things that we always do is the hands-on activity. Uh, we are going to have lots of activities for kids. They can just get right in there uh, and, and put their hands on things and learn how to do things. Uh, we're going to have a little shop of physics from Colorado. Uh, we will have science uh, exhibits. We will have, um, we might even have a balloon launch tomorrow, but it depends on the weather and mm -hmm. the wind because we have to be careful where that the, the path of the of the <laughs> balloon um, so there's just so much going on and, and of course we're always adding new things every year and some of our mainstays are uh, we have Jeremy Red Eagle coming from Sisseton Wapaton Oyate we have um, our three fantastic speakers and um, we have even more activities this year than we have in the past okay lots of fun family fun uh, my favorite is the tour of the hoist room. Yes, I, how right. can I forget that? We <laughs> we have to <laughs> we have to, we we're asking people to come in a little early if you want to do a hoist room tour because although everything is free on Neutrino Day, we do need to have people sign up for the hoist room tour. Uh, that's because we have limited space mm -hmm. and they're only going to be running every hour this year. We have some construction going on and in Leeds, so we're asking people to park at the visitor center or, or somewhere near where we have the buses running, and we'll have buses running uh, every 15 minutes to take people to different places, and we'll be located uh, at the visitor center, at the Handley Center in Leeds, at the Hampton Inn, and at the, um, at the Opera House. Okay, so you need special. You need a bus to come up here. People can't right. just drive up here. Oh, th not to the lab. No, we the want lab. them to park at the visitor center. That's where everything starts. Okay, because construction is. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so, route. And, and there's a lot happening at the visitor center too. For example, Black Hills Energy has their electric vehicles. You can learn a little bit more about 
uh, Termospheres. If everybody, I think, in South mm -hmm. Dakota knows about Dick Termos. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be learning about geology there. And so there's just a lot to do. A lot of science to talk about. A lot of it. Okay. We have about five minutes uh, to, to talk. Uh, so people can just show up, sign up for the Hoist Room Tour, um, and you have speeches. Do you have the times of the speeches? Brian's oh, at 4 o'clock. We have our, our keynote is at 4 o'clock. Uh -huh. um, and uh, let's see, what are the other times? Mike, did you write that down anywhere? <laughs> no, I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, but we have them throughout the day. So we have one talk. The, the talk about from Cat is at the Visitor Center. And um, and then I think we have an 11 o'clock, a 1.30. But the schedule is all at NeutrinoDay.com. Okay. We also have schedules put up all over the place. So people can look at that and, and we'll be handing out uh, schedules as well. So. Okay, so let's talk a little bit. I, I People always ask me how you get down here, and I always say it's a 1920s pulley system uh, in the cage. True? Uh, it's newer than that. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite 1920s. But it is a, a, lo a lot of it is actually the, the equipment that Homestake actually installed in the, in the 40s okay. and has been modernized over time. And so... Uh, we come down in in the in the shaft. The cage is about five feet wide by thirteen feet long, and it's a ten minute ride down that averages about five hundred feet a minute going from top to bottom. And so we're able to host up to about thirty people per cage. And uh, when we're not doing that, we're moving. We talked about the excavation. Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of concrete, a lot of rock bolts and explosives and everything to do that. So when we're not transporting people, we're moving dozens of loads every day. Okay, and it is though a pulley, it's a rope. It is, the the, yeah. the actual rope is connected to the hoist, which is located mm -hmm. a short distance away from the head frame where the where the shaft is. And the rope is, in the in the Ross, the, the uh, rope is an inch and five eighths in diameter and so uh, that's what's used to connect the hoist to the to the cage to lower us in and out so and we should clarify that the rope isn't actually like the 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 rope that you would no. tie it's, it's a wire a, rope it's a it's wire, wire rope, rope. It's, yeah it, no it's, it's like it's a cool. se series of cables yeah. that are kind of uh, uh, twisted around a natural fiber core it's called wire rope yeah no that's that's why it's my favorite room to actually see what <laughs> was holding everything together so and it just spins and it's it's a very cool thing to to see and it's a very fun thing to fun i have fun uh to experience the ride down so um but not everybody gets to have that experience um and so uh you will have a scientist underground talking somebody underground talking about being from, in this from caterpillar from we'll, caterpillar we'll have, will uh, be underground on the 1700 level and okay. dan pierce Mm -hmm. is going to talk about the systems they're using underground to help track people and equipment. And it's, uh, Dan is a great speaker. He's a lot of fun to listen to. And I think people will learn a lot from that and enjoy it a great deal. Okay. What else do people need to know uh, about the lab in the last minute or so that we have of this broadcast that, that you want to make sure people understand as you're, as you're talking about millions of dollars uh, coming here? Yeah. Um, what do you want to say? Well, we uh, maybe just give an update on the economic impact of the lab. So uh, a few months ago, we updated our economic impact analysis. And in this decade alone, uh, in South Dakota alone, uh, we'll, we'll be having a, a $2 billion impact on the, on the economy in the state. 1,200 jobs, not 
not all of those 1,200 will be located at, at CERP, but just kind of statewide, the number of jobs that we're contributing to is 1,200. We have uh, four, if you, if you count all the noses of all the contractors and our staff and everything, we have about 400 full-time staff members who are working up at CERF right now. Wow. That's, that's, you've expanded a lot in we 15 have. years. Yeah, we're <laughs> right. I want to say you've built it from the ground up, but you've really built it from the ground down. Right. 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 Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mike, I want to thank you for taking time. Uh, and Connie, thanks again. Uh, thanks for letting us always come down uh, and see for ourselves and get these updates. I really appreciate it. And getting to meet the fabulous speakers as well. So thank you. Thank uh, you, Kara. Yeah, thank for you. Letting thank us, you all for coming out. For being here. I want to give a special shout out to Colton Nicholson, uh, engineer extraordinaire, uh, getting us on the air and connected, and Ellen Kesser and Ari Youngeman uh, back at the ranch in Vermilion in the studio. So thanks all very much. That'll do it uh, for this live broadcast from the 4850-foot level. You're listening to In the Moment.